Well, we're, this morning we're um, kind of starting to get into um, our Lighten Up theme. And um, over this, uh, this coming year, I want us to, uh, at different times, draw our attention to some of the things um, that we need to let go of, which, um, which have a tendency to weigh us down. And one of uh, those culprits, one of those things that's responsible for making the Christian life far harder than it was ever meant to be is um, our failure to grasp or understand the concept of grace. And so this morning we're going to be, uh, if you hadn't realised it by the kind of the songs and communion and, um, and uh, Kate's message this morning, we're going to be looking at the subject of, of, of grace. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually repeat a story by, by way of um, introduction this morning that I shared just over a month ago. And um, I'm intentionally um, resurrecting this story, uh, firstly because it's a really good one, secondly because not everybody was here a couple of weeks ago, and thirdly because I think it, it, it really graphically um, illustrates uh, the point that I want to make. Timothy Paul Jones tells the story of a family who are finding it difficult to integrate an, an, an adopted girl. So after a couple of years, this is a tragedy, the adoption was dissolved. And this man, uh, Timothy, and his family ended up welcoming this little eight-year-old girl into uh, their home. As it turns out that uh, this adopted daughter's previous family had holidayed regularly at, um, at Disney World. And whilst they'd taken their biological uh, uh, children with them, uh, this adopted uh, child would always be left behind because they said her behaviour wasn't good enough. When Timothy and his wife learned um, about their newly adopted daughter's experience, they made plans to take her to Disney World in Florida. However, in the, in the months leading up to the trip, this little girl's behaviour spiralled out of control. She stole things, um, she lied, and she began to uh, spitefully hurt her older sister. And as they began to count down the days to Disney World, her conduct got worse and worse. And a couple of days before heading off to Florida, the little girl said to her dad, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? Timothy writes, the easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? And she nodded. And are you a part of this family? And she nodded again. Then... You're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family and we are not leaving you behind. So they headed off to Florida and after the first day, Timothy placed his daughter on his lap and asked her, so how was your first day at Disney World? And this was her response. Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm 
yours. That was a profound uh, insight for an eight-year-old. And what she's expressing uh, is the heart of the message of grace. Grace is never something we gain by being good. It's a gift that we receive by being God's. We live in a world where approximately 84% of the world's population consider themselves to be religious. And the key question that all religions are seeking to answer is, how is a person made right with God? Religion at its, at its very core is dealing with the righteousness question. How can I know for sure that I have peace with God and that I am right in God's sight. Now, righteousness is one of those kind of religious uh, words. We don't use it um, in kind of everyday language. It's, it's this religious word. And I think it's best understood by uh, the pidgin English translation of this word righteousness, which is God, he say, me all right. What is righteousness? Righteousness is God, he say, me all right. I just love that little um, that inter interpretation of what righteousness is. And almost all religions say that the, the way to right standing with God is based on two things. Or one of two things. Rule keeping, keeping the rules and or performing religious rituals. Almost all religions around the world say the same thing. A person experiences peace with God, is in right relationship with God because one, they either keep the rules and or they follow or perform religious rituals. So, for example, in Islam, there are, there are five pillars uh, which are a mix of rules and rituals that Muslims are required to adhere to in order to demonstrate their submission to God and secure right standing with God. And those five pillars are, the first one is, all you students of world religions, uh, first one is belief in and the confession of um, the, the, the Muslim the Muslim creed, there is no God but Allah and uh, the prophet uh, is, and, and Muhammad is his prophet. The second pillar is prayer. Every day, uh, Muslims uh, are required to bow down and pray in the direction of, uh, of Mecca five times every day. Then uh, they are required to give to the poor. Um, the fourth pillar is uh, Ramadan, which is the observance of a month of fasting. How about we in introduce that into the church and, and, and um, not make it optional, not like Lent. Or number five, number five, pillar number five is that a Muslim is required to at least attempt to make a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their lifetime. And when, when Muslims uphold these five pillars, um, they are deemed to have right standing with God. It's a religion of rules and rituals. Um, for Hindus, um, right standing with God is the result of living many lives 
and accumulating enough uh, good works during those, lifetime, those lifetimes through the cycle of, of, of birth and rebirth that they are able to earn their right standing with God. So in other words, uh, I made a mess of my life this time, but uh, give me another opportunity, I will be reincarnated, and give me enough opportunities, I will eventually um, atone for my sin and earn my way to heaven. So this is almost um, uh, this is uh, the, the almost the universal uh, religious pattern for securing righteousness. Keep the rules and keep the rituals. In, in Jesus' day, um, Jews, Judaism was strongly influenced by a group called the Pharisees. And a Bible uh, scholar was called the Pharisees the, the serious ones. Um, they were serious about God. They were serious about the Bible. They were serious about keeping the commandments. They were serious about living a holy life. Not only were they um, the serious ones, but the name Pharisee, the word Pharisee means separated one. And they were obsessed uh, with separation. They kept their distance from uh, certain foods and certain places and certain people who didn't measure up to their stringent moral standards. Not only did they separate themselves from the morally impure, in the minds of the Pharisees, the morally impure were separated from God. Historically, and I'm going to... I'm going to um, nail this one because um, it's true. Judaism um, had been a religion of grace. I'm going to repeat that. Historically, Judaism had been a religion of grace. The Old Testament teaches that a Jew had right standing with God not because they kept the rules or performed religious Rituals. I know that as Christians, we think that a Jew was, was right with God because they kept the Ten Commandments. That is not the case. Wasn't the case in the Bible and wasn't the case for Jews today. Go and talk to a Jewish person. They will tell you and explain to you that they're not righteous because they keep the Ten Commandments. But their righteousness, historically, was based on the sacrifice of an innocent animal which died in their place as their substitute. That was how historically a Jewish person was in right standing with God. Not because they fulfilled uh, any of the commandments, because, but because they trusted in a sacrifice on their behalf to take away their sin and appease God. But what the Pharisees had done was they had gradually changed Judaism from a religion of grace to one of keeping the commandments. And not just the um, 613 laws of Moses that are found in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, but um, the commandments that are also contained in what is called the Mishnah, which was a commentary on the 613 commandments. And the Mishnah was um, additional man-made rules, which the Pharisees um, held as being in equal authority with the Scripture themselves. And the Pharisees were, were obsessed with keeping these additional rules. 
So, for example, um, the command to keep the Sabbath, that is to set aside one day out of the week to seek uh, from um, work uh, and, and to rest. Simple command. But the Pharisees added over 600 regulations regarding what qualified as work on the Sabbath. And they had similar, similar regulations for all of the other 613 commandments. Um, you can imagine, for the average Jewish person, keeping the Pharisees' version of the law was impossible. And it was against this, um, this backdrop that Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A rabbi's uh, teaching in Jesus' day was called, um, called their yoke. And what you would do is you would join yourself to a rabbi and you would take upon yourself their teaching. And the Pharisees' teaching or their yoke, um, with its long lists of do's and don'ts, was burdensome and weary. It was unfulfillable. And Jesus comes along to those who are struggling under the oppressive weight of um, rule-keeping that the, the Pharisees um, had instituted. And Jesus says he invites people to jo join themselves to his teaching, which he says is easy. And that word there, easy, means um, well-fitting or good or kind or helpful. And what Jesus was doing, he was lightening the load and releasing people from the impossible rules, regulations and requirements that had been imposed upon them by the Pharisees. Now, under the Pharisees, Judaism was no longer a religion of grace, but it had become a righteousness based on a, what was called a purity ethic, a strict moral code and system of rule-keeping. And what the, the Pharisees in the time of Jesus believed was that God's judgment was being visited on Israel in the form of the Roman Empire because people weren't serious enough about living according to this purity ethic. And there was a particular group of people known as the tax collectors and sinners who the Pharisees saw as being the ones who were responsible for the mess that Israel found itself in. I want us this morning to look at an event in the life of Jesus that shows what he thought about the tax collectors and sinners. What he thought about keeping the unrealistic expectations of the law and what he thought about this purity ethic as being the means of right standing with God. In Matthew 9, it says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. In those days, um, Rome, the Roman Empire had split Israel into uh, three provinces. And uh, when you traveled from one province to another, you had to pay a travel, ta travel tax. 
Um, it was just like you know going on East Link or on um, Peninsula Link, except they didn't have e-tags on their donkeys back then. What you would do is you would come to a a, 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 a tax collector's booth and you would pay a toll, a road tax, for crossing from one province into another. But not only were there, were there these travel tolls, Rome also applied a, a trading tax. So for every item of, item of produce you grew or for every fish you caught, um, a tax would be applied, which was again collected by the tax collectors. And that, that tax was sent off to Rome to keep uh, the empire propped up. But on top of the travel tax and on top of the trading tax, um, the um, tax collectors would also add their own fee. And often they charge exorbitant rates. And if you happen to complain or resist um, the, the, the tax collector's additional tax, that you'd either be fined um, you'd have your goods conf confiscated or you would be put in jail. So you didn't have any choice. Consequently, these tax collectors were the most despised and ostracised members of Jewish society because these tax collectors weren't Romans. They were Jews who turned their back on their own country to make themselves rich at their own people's expense. These tax collectors were hated and considered the lowest of the low because they sided with Rome. So if you can imagine what life was like for someone like Matthew, he would have probably been, have been disowned by uh, members of his own family. He'd walk down the street and uh, people uh, would, would um, would look at him um, and despise him. They would probably, um, probably curse him. And chances are this man, Matthew, despite the fact that he was becoming extremely wealthy, he would have carried a sense of shame. And perhaps he was having second thoughts about the lifestyle that he'd adopted. And along comes Jesus. And Jesus doesn't shame Matthew. Instead of a glare or a curse, Jesus says to Matthew, I choose you. Come, come and follow me and be my disciple. And Matthew immediately leaves his tax collector's booth and begins to journey with Jesus. In the religious climate of the day, if there's anyone who didn't deserve the opportunity for a new start in life, it was Matthew. Because Matthew symbolised everything that the Pharisees believed was wrong with Israel at the time. The story continues. It says that Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable Sinners. This man, Matthew, was so overwhelmed by the generosity shown by Jesus that he throws a party and he invites um, all his tax collector friends and other sinners um, to meet Jesus and his inner circle of disciples who he is now part of. And by eating with this group, the most despised and looked down people 
in Jewish society, Jesus is making a pointed and profound statement. The table in the ancient world was a boundary marker. It defined who you valued, who you felt was important, who you thought was worthy of your presence or company. And here at the meal table, Jesus was proclaiming that God wasn't playing the game the Pharisees were playing. While the Pharisees operated with a religion of by, by separation or segregation, Jesus was instituting a religion by association. Jesus was shown divine hospitality and pointing out that those who didn't keep the rules were welcome at the table of God. And this was not just a party, but a picture of God's grace. And what Jesus was doing, he was replacing the, the purity ethic that governed Phariseeism and the nation of Israel at that time with what is called a mercy ethic. It goes on to say, the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with such, sc such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. In other words, you guys, go and read your Bibles. And he's quoting from Hosea here. He says, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. The gospel is the radical announcement of grace, that acceptance by God is never gained by keeping the rules or through self-effort. There's a bunch of scriptures here. Uh, Romans 3.20 says that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Romans 3.26, God makes sinners right in his, in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Romans 4.5, people are counted as righteous not because of their work, not because of their self-effort, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And then Philippians 3.9, Paul says, I no longer count on my own righteousness or my own effort through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. Righteousness is a free gift of grace offered to us by God and received by faith. And faith is very simply saying thank you to God for the gift that he offers. At its heart, Judaism was a religion of grace. Through the sacrifice of an innocent animal, which acted as a substitute, people were made right with God. But this simple, generous message of grace was hijacked and distorted by the Pharisees. Christianity, at its heart, is also a religion of grace. But just like the Judaism at the time of the Pharisees. Our religion of grace that was brought to us in Christ has been hijacked and distorted. You see, the 
issue today for the majority of Christians is not how do we gain righteousness. What do I have to do to get in? If I was to ask you here, most of you here today who are Christians, how do you get in? You would say, I get in solely because of Christ and what Christ has done. Nothing more and nothing less. Would that be pretty fair summation? But the challenge facing Christians is not how do we gain right standing with God. But how do we maintain right standing with God? How do I stay in once I've got in? We understand that we get in by grace, but now that we are in there, there is this pressure to perform, to maintain our righteousness by keeping the rules and the rituals. So, do you have to keep the rules Gain right standing with God. Yes or no? Do you have to keep the rules to maintain right standing with God? Do you have to pray to gain right standing with God? What about, do you have to pray to maintain right standing with God. I can see some people nodding their heads. Do I have to read my Bible to gain right standing with God? Do I have to read my Bible to maintain right standing with God? And the same is true about giving or about attending church, or you name it, having communion, you name whatever it is, whatever the rule or the ritual might be. Can I tell you this morning, I, I'm not saved or I'm not righteous because I prayed a prayer, because I gave money, because I read my Bible, because I went to church. I am righteous by grace and by grace alone. That's how I gained my right standing with God. And I want to tell you this morning, if I never pray, if I never read my Bible, if I never give, if I never attend church, if I never partake of communion again, I want to tell you this morning, I'm as righteous as I'll ever be. Because righteousness is not only something that um, takes us into right standing with God, it is grace that keeps us in that place. And I never, ever, ever have to read my Bible again. I never have to. You do not have to pray. You do not have to give. You do not have to read your Bible. You do not have to partake of communion. You are as righteous as you will ever be. In fact, you are as righteous as Jesus is right now. It doesn't get any better than that. And what I've just done is I have messed up any opportunity that I have to manipulate you or control you, shaming you into thinking that you should do something such as give or turn up for church, all the things that make me look good. 
I forfeited all of that because I've told you, you don't have to turn up next week and your righteousness will be unchanged. You don't have to tithe or give again. And it will not alter in the slightest shape or form your right standing with God. And I, like, like Paul, would be willing to die for that truth. I'll not die for a whole lot of things, but I would die for your right to be able to say, I will never pray again. I will never read my Bible again. I will never attend church again. And believe that in the act of doing that, that does not alter your right standing with God one iota. And your response to me will be, well, well, doesn't the Bible command us to pray? Doesn't the Bible tell us that we should uh, attend church, not neglect the uh, assembling together of ourselves? Doesn't the Bible say we should give? But we do those things. We keep the rules and the rituals, but never as a means of gaining or maintaining our right standing with God. And if you do, when we do, include myself, we are operating in the realm of the Pharisees. The reason I pray, and I do pray, and the reason I read my Bible, and I do read my Bible, and the reason that I partake of communion, the reason uh, which I give and attend church is for one reason alone, is because those things, the Bible tells me that within me there is a river of life called the Holy Spirit, the indwelling person of Christ. And when I give and when I... Fellowship, and when I pray and when I read my Bible, I create riverbanks that facilitate the flow of the life of God that is already in me through the new birth that I received when I was declared righteous at my conversion. I do all of those things. In fact, I probably do those things more than those folks who say you have to do them to maintain your righteousness before God. I do those things, though, not to secure righteousness. I do it, do those things, to allow and create a channel or a flow of the life of God that's already within me. And the difference between those things is life and death. So if you're doing all of those things like I'm doing all of those things and you're doing it from a place of you have to, what it produces, the Bible tells us, is death. Because what you're trying to do is earn favour and merit with God. But when you do those things, not from any other place other than the fact that I've got a river in me and I've got to let that river flow and the way that I do it is I pray, I read my Bible. And if I never do those things again, that's okay. It doesn't change my right standing with God. The difference is life and death. And I want you, I want us all 
to be praying, Bible-believing, Bible-reading, generous, church-attending people. But we're doing it with the right motive, from the right place. We're not trying to earn or merit God's favour. When we do that, the life comes, the river flows. When we're doing it to earn our right standing with God, it brings death.